Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you once again for your servant, Peter, and the epistles that he wrote to the church. I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we study your word. Father, I pray that you would be with each one of us who's gathered here this morning, that you would calm our hearts and quiet the noise from the outside world, the stress that we have from, from work, from family, uh, from things going on in our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us all just for a little while to focus on your word. Father, I pray that you would uh, be with the folks gathered in this room. People are going through all sorts of trials, all sorts of troubles. Father, I pray that you would uh, use your word to speak to those trials and those troubles today. pray that you would be with uh, me as I speak. Help me to communicate clearly what you've laid on my heart. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We've been studying 1 Peter. Uh, we've spoke, spoken previously about how 1 Peter is, in a way, sort of a, a handbook or a field guide for pilgrims. Peter addresses his readers as strangers or exiles or pilgrims. We spoke several times ago about God's work in bringing about our salvation. In verse 2 there, we read about the work of the three persons of the Trinity to bring about our salvation. And then last time we had an opportunity to study this letter together, we talked about... Uh, God's abundant mercy, and how he's given us the new birth, and that we are now alive unto a living hope. We, we have this hope in this incorruptible inheritance that awaits us in the world to come. 
uh, and that God will keep us by his power uh, to that salvation that's ready to be revealed. And now, this morning, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9 um, and, and what I would call a paradox in the pilgrim's life. If you're following along in your outline, the first blank, there's the word paradox. The way of Christ is a paradox. A paradox is a statement that on the surface appears to contain contradiction. In this passage, we see something that appears to be contradictory. You see Peter in verse 6 address his readers as being in heaviness, but then he also addresses them as having great joy. So let's look at this paradox. The second blank, if you're following along, is the pilgrim on the way of Christ experiences heaviness. Again, in verse 6, Peter addresses his hearers as those who are in heaviness. The New American Standard says, uh, those who have been grieved. Peter says the heaviness comes from these, what he calls, manifold temptations. Uh, many translations, instead of the word temptations, will have the word trials, and that's probably a better word here. Uh, manifold is uh, the idea that something is many-faceted. There's many different sides to it. You can think of a gem or a piece of origami. There are many different sides to these trials, to these temptations. This word here captures all sorts of trials that we might face. It can include persecution and poverty. It can include depression and diagnosis. It can include rejection and ridicule. And Peter says that the believer, as a result of these trials, may experience heaviness or grief. The pilgrim on the way of Christ, in addition to experiencing heaviness, also experiences joy. And that's the next blank. The pilgrim on the way of Christ experiences joy. See, in seeming contradiction to this heaviness, Peter addresses his readers as those who, it says in verse 6, greatly rejoice. Um, and it says again in verse uh, uh, 8, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, in verse 6 there, he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. The word there, wherein, points us back to what we've discussed in some of our previous sessions. It points us back to the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in accomplishing our salvation. It points us back to the inheritance. These are the things in which the believer rejoices. But nevertheless, this is a paradox. The believer here is experiencing at the same time both heaviness and joy. How can this be? How can heaviness and joy exist at the same time in the same person? Before we consider whether the passage resolves this paradox, I want to consider the heaviness and the joy a little bit more closely. First, the heaviness. The Bible does not present us with the unattainable goal of Stoicism. The Bible does not demand a stiff upper lip. Some great martyrs have faced the harshest persecution without wavering. You might have heard the great story of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who faced the fire of the Roman Catholic stake. As the fire burned under their feet, Hugh Latimer turned to Ridley and said this. He says, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Stories of martyrs facing suffering with a seemingly indomitable spirit like this are inspiring. 
But does the Bible demand this demeanor of us? If we begin to think that this level of fortitude is something that is required, or if it is superior, we might begin to think something is wrong with us when we find ourselves experiencing depression in the midst of suffering. We might come to think of ourselves as inferior Christians because we feel heaviness. Peter says the heaviness comes from these manifold temptations. Perhaps I'm speaking to some today under grief from diagnosis. Perhaps I'm speaking to some who feel the heaviness of betrayal. Perhaps some who feel depressed under the weight of loneliness. Perhaps some feel downcast over the pain of ridicule. Perhaps your trial is a mental or emotional illness or wound that others don't understand. Perhaps no one knows about your trial. Perhaps you're afraid to mention it out of fear that someone will tell you to just get over it, but it has nevertheless put you in great heaviness. And perhaps the story of the brave martyr who faced the fire with a smile is inspiring, but ultimately discouraging. Because the heaviness you feel doesn't match the stories you hear. Take comfort in this. Your Savior was also in heaviness. In Matthew 26, verse 37 to 39, we read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 36, it says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and, and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. The phrase here translated to be sorrowful is just a single word in the Greek. And that word to be sorrowful here in Matthew 26, 37 is the same word that we find in our passage, 1 Peter 1, 6, that's translated in heaviness. Ye are in heaviness. See, Jesus felt this same emotion that Peter is describing, heaviness. Jesus felt the heaviness that we feel. He continues on in verse 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus felt the heaviness that we feel. He felt it so strongly that he fell on his face in the garden. Jesus was not a stoic. He did not face suffering without emotion. And the Bible does not demand that we suffer differently than our Savior. Peter's told us we may find ourselves in heaviness. But what does he tell us about this heaviness? Uh, the next blank in your outline, there's a, I believe there's a typo. If you cross out the word at times, but the, the blank there is temporary. Heaviness is temporary. See, Peter opens his discussion of this heaviness with a precious comfort. He says these manifold temptations are temporary. Now for a season, they're just for a season. The grief that you feel is for a season. The depression that you're experiencing is for a season. It isn't forever. It might last a day or a week or several months. It may come and go over a long period of time. 
You might have good days when you feel mostly the joy that Peter describes, and you might have bad days when you almost feel uh, as if there's no point in continuing at all. But it is all for a season, Peter reminds us. It will pass. The sun will rise. Winter will end and spring will come. Ice will melt and flowers will bloom. There is a rainbow on the other side of the storm. Endure the trial. Endure the heaviness. It will be found, as Peter says, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your suffering is temporary. But this heaviness that we feel is necessary at times. That's the next blank. The heaviness is necessary. Peter says, if need be, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. What would the need be? Why would there ever be a need for heaviness? Why would it ever be necessary for God to bring us to a point of grief? Peter tells us in verse 7, he says, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter compares the fire that is used to test and purify gold to the trials God uses to test our faith. The goldsmith uses the fire to test the gold and to purify the gold. And just as the goldsmith uses the fire to test the gold, God uses trials to test our faith. This metaphor of the goldsmith brings another biblical account to mind, the account of Job. Remember Job, uh, the very first verse of Job, the book of Job, tells us this about him. Job 1.1, it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. We're also told that Job had great wealth, and a large family, and he was the greatest of all the men of the East. Satan went to God and questioned Job's faith, and to paraphrase Satan, he says, yes, Job seems to fear you, but take away all that you've given him, and you'll see him curse you to your face. So God gives Satan power over Job's possessions, over his family, and eventually over Job's health. Job's oxen and camels were stolen by Sabaeans and Chaldeans, and his servants were killed by those same individuals. Job's sheep, his sons, his daughters, were all killed in what we would call natural disasters of fire and wind. Job himself was covered from head to toe with open sores. How does Job respond to this? Job says in Job 2.10, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Job understood that regardless of the instruments of his suffering, impersonal natural forces, these Sabaeans, Chaldeans, these enemies, this evil was from the hand of God. Later in the book, in Job 23, I believe Job describes this heaviness that we can feel sometimes. In Job 23, verse 8, he says, Behold, I go forward 
but he is not there, speaking of God, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job couldn't see God. It was like the psalmist says, God had hidden his face and he couldn't perceive him. He goes forward and he's not there. He goes backward. He's not there. He's not on the left or the right. Where is God? It seems like God is nowhere. I'm suffering. I don't understand why. But I know that he knows the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Even when God seemed far away in the heaviness that Job felt, Job understood his suffering came from the hand of God. He uses the same metaphor Peter uses in our passage in 1 Peter to explain the suffering. God is trying him in the furnace of affliction as a master goldsmith tries gold in the fire. So again, we ask, what is the need be? Why would suffering ever be necessary? Well, there's a couple of categories we can think in. Heaviness could be part of God's chastening, his discipline of his children. Uh, Hebrews 12, 5 admonishes us. He says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Heaviness, God's chastening, can be a sign of God's love, because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. As the goldsmith removes impurities from gold in the fire of the kiln, so God may chasten us with trials and temptations to purify us. Perhaps God wants to remove our pride. I found great comfort in uh, these words from the Puritan writer Richard Sibbs. He says, We need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Sometimes we can think of ourselves more highly than we should, and, and the Lord will bruise us to remind us that we're not oak trees, but we're feeble reeds. Perhaps God wants to remove our impatience. Uh, the, the same exact phrase that we have here um, appears also in 1 Peter when it says the trial of your faith. Uh, in the Greek, it's the exact same as the phrase we find in James 1, verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh, patience. The heaviness uh, could be God's chastening. He's removing the impurities from us because he sees us as gold worth purifying. The heaviness could also be part of God's preparation. Over and over again in scripture, we see examples of God bringing some form of suffering or trial into the life of a man before he uses him to perform some great task. Only after the pit and the prison did God raise Joseph up to save the land of Egypt. Only after being driven into the caves did David write the Psalms. Only after spending 40 years in Midian did Moses lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, Charles Spurgeon summarized this well, and I, I just want to let him speak on this. He says this, This heaviness is of essential use to a Christian if he would do good to others. Ah, there are a great many Christian people that I was going to say I should like to see afflicted, but I will not say so much as that. I should like to see them heavy in spirit. If it were the Lord's will that they should be bowed down greatly, I would not express a word of regret. 
For a little more sympathy would do them good. A little more power to sympathize would be a precious boon to them. And even if it were purchased by a short journey through a burning, fiery furnace, they might not rue the day afterwards in which they'd been called to pass through the flame. There are none so tender as those who have been skinned themselves. Those who have been in the chamber of affliction know how to comfort those who are there. Do not believe that any man will become a physician unless he walks the hospitals. And I am sure that no one will become a divine or become a comforter unless he lies in the hospital as well as walks through it and has to suffer himself. God cannot make ministers, and I speak with reverence of his holy name. He cannot make a Barnabas except in the fire. It is there and there alone that he can make his sons of consolation. He may make his sons of thunder anywhere. But his sons of consolation he must make in the fire, and there alone. Who shall speak to those whose hearts are broken? Who shall bind up their wounds but those whose hearts have been broken also, and whose wounds have long run with the sore of grief? If need be, then, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Chastising. Preparation, these are just two of the many potential needs be for our suffering. These are two potential explanations for things God could be doing in our suffering. But this leads us to the next point, and it's that heaviness is eternally purposeful. Peter says to his readers, Ye are in heaviness so that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory when at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter is emphasizing that the testing of our faith will mean something on the last day. These trials, these manifold temptations that test our faith ultimately have purpose. I want to say this clearly. If you attempt to answer the question that we just discussed, which is, why is suffering necessary in my life? You may very well be left with a huge question mark. That's why Peter points us to what he calls the appearing of Jesus Christ, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. The appearing or revelation refers to the last day on which Jesus is going to return to judge the world, like we just read about in our statement of faith. And it's on that day that we will finally see that all our suffering was purposeful. But we might never understand it in this life. We might never be able to say, oh, I went through this trial so that then I could help this person. Oh, I went through this suffering so that I could then remove this sin from my life. There might be things that happen or have happened that there's no explanation for. But the Bible tells us that our endurance through these trials is meaningful. Did you know that what you do now matters forever? And have you ever considered that how you respond to suffering in this life will echo in eternity? You might have some idea of what retirement will look like for you based on what you're putting into your 401k or other retirement plan. But there's also a heavenly retirement plan you should be investing into. Remember Jesus' words. I feel that I read these every time we're together, but 
they're, they're so important. Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How do we go about that? How do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? James says this in James 1.12. He says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The crown of life is the reward to those who endure these manifold temptations. It's the reward to those whose faith is proven as gold in the fire of tribulation. Remember, Hebrews 2.7 tells us that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, but he wasn't crowned with glory and honor, but after he wore the crown of thorns. After we endure temptation, after we endure trial, God will give us the crown of life. Our trials will be found unto praise and honor and glory. What we do now matters forever. Peter tells us that these trials will be found unto praise and honor and glory. On the last day, the trials will be found to result in praise. We can think of praise as the expression of approval. After we've run our race, we want to hear our Savior express his approval. We want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Like he says in Matthew 25, 23. In addition to praise, on the last day, the trials we've been through will be found to result in honor and glory. We can think of honor as respect held for another. We can think of glory as that quality that emanates from someone worthy of honor. These are crude definitions. But the idea is this. Paul says it this way. In first, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul says this, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In Romans 8.18, he says it this way, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Light affliction sufferings, but for a moment, this present time, both these things are describing what both Paul and Peter describe as this glory which shall be revealed, the eternal weight of glory, the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. On the last day, the sufferings we go through will result in an eternal weight of glory. Matthew, or Matthew 13, 43 describes the last day this way. He says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. I say something now that is at the edges of what the Bible tells us about the resurrection. I, 
am not dogmatic about this, but nevertheless, it's something I have believed for some time. And I put it this way, the marks of affliction follow us into eternity. The Bible teaches that on the last day, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it here, we will receive a glorified, resurrected body. We don't have it yet. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.23, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our body. We've not yet received this glorified body, but we will one day. We have hints of what this glorified, resurrected body will be like. First, we have a description of Jesus' glorified body. We can see that he carried marks of his affliction in his glorified body. In uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, Thomas doubts whether Jesus has truly resurrected. He says in verse 35 of John 20, he says, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus appears to the disciples and then down in verse 27 says, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus bore marks of affliction in his glorified body. In Revelation, John describes some of the saints that he sees. In Revelation 24, John says this. He says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. How did John know that the saints were beheaded? I don't think they wore t-shirts and I don't think that there was a sign. I believe John saw scars. Uh, and I believe that they appeared beautiful. Just as the scars on Jesus' hands will be beautiful because of what they represent to us, so too the scars of the saints will be found unto honor and glory. Uh, I believe that, as Peter says here, these trials that we go through will be found unto honor and glory. And, and this is one way, again, I'm not dogmatic about this, but I believe just based on what we see with Jesus bearing these marks of affliction, I believe that the saints may carry these marks of affliction into eternity and they will be beautiful things. Just as the scar on the back of someone who's donated a kidney is not a hideous but a beautiful thing because of what it represents, I think the scars that we go through. And I believe because he says here manifold trials and temptations, in some way the emotional scars and the, the mental torment that we go through in this life will also be found unto honor and glory. Somehow these things will be seen again. I don't speak dogmatically. We can't be certain. John says in 1 John 3, 2, he says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We don't know what the resurrection will be like exactly, but we do know that what we're going through now will matter there. It will be found unto praise and honor and glory. And whatever praise and honor and glory we receive, and whatever that looks like, we, will be, we can expect that we will immediately lay it at Jesus' feet. Remember the four and twenty elders in the book of Revelation. They cast their crowns at his feet. Whatever crowns we receive for things done in this life, whatever honor and glory God bestows on us for the way that we suffered, the way that we endured trials, these will be things that we will, we will cast at his feet because we'll understand that 
Uh, really, only Christ is worthy, uh, and, and we are blessed just to be there. And this brings us to the second piece of the paradox. I say the second piece, not the second half. That's the, the bullet, the pilgrim on the way of Christ experiences joy. It's the second piece, not the second half, because we don't experience sort of a half heaviness and a half joy, and we have this mixed melancholy. We experience true heaviness, but we also experience true joy at the same time. We've talked about the heaviness and where that comes from. Where does our joy come from? Well, Peter tells us our joy comes from our salvation. That's the blank. The pilgrim rejoices in his salvation. Our passage opens with these words, wherein ye greatly rejoice. That word wherein, again, points to what comes before this verse. Let's look at verse 2. It's a little review of what we've been through before. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The pilgrim rejoices in his election. It might be hard in this room right now, this morning, to reflect and feel joy in this, but take this home and meditate on it. You, believer, have been elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father chose in eternity past to set his love on you. Rest your mind in that thought and find joy. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, through sanctification of the Spirit, again in verse 2, through sanctification of the Spirit, Jesus sent his Spirit to comfort us. The Holy Spirit is with us. He's with us even as David says in the Psalms, in the depths, out of the depths I have cried to you. Uh, Even when it seems to you like it seemed to Job that God has hidden himself, You can't see God in your trial. You don't know the purpose. You can't find what the purpose is, but the Holy Spirit is our comforter. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 130? It says, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Wherever the believer goes, the Spirit continues his work of sanctifying the believer and of comforting the believer, and the believer rejoices in that. Rest your mind in verse 2 wherein ye greatly rejoice unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 2. The believer rejoices in the work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came. He lived this life of obedience. He suffered perfectly as an example of how we should suffer. This is a theme. Paul, Peter here is still laying down some of the foundation of where he's going with this epistle. And this is a theme, suffering well, that he will develop. Um, uh, I... I say that this is the, the, the believer's or the, the pilgrim's handbook, the pilgrim's field guide as sort of a unifying idea to think about what Peter is doing in this epistle. Um, I remember early on when Rob asked me, is there sort of a, a theme or like a catchphrase that would be good for this? And I said, yeah, it's live your worst life well. That's the theme of 1 Peter is live your worst life well. He talks about suffering over and over and over again. Uh, and he continually points us to the cross as an example. He says in 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Christ is the example for us. In, in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's 
sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. A lot of people point to 413 as sort of the key verse of this whole epistle. The believer rejoices in the example of his suffering Savior. Again, he went through what we go through. The next blank there is the pilgrim rejoices in his Savior. This isn't a separate point from the previous point, but it's a continuation of it. The believer rejoices, Peter tells us, especially in his Savior. He says in verse 8, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rejoice in him whom we have not seen. Jesus said, just after he interacted with Thomas and Thomas had to touch the scars, uh, he said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus calls us blessed because we haven't seen and yet have believed. And this brings us to uh, the final point there in your outline. It's the pilgrim's rejoicing is at times unspeakable and full of glory. Unspeakable. Some translations have it inexpressible. We might not be able to put it into words when we feel both heaviness and joy at the same time. We might not be able to express it. It's a feeling that goes beyond words. It's unspeakable. It's inexpressible. But this joy is more than just unspeakable. It says this joy is full of glory. How is it that our joy is full of glory? Because Peter just said, that we are awaiting glory. It says that, that the trial of your faith might be found unto praise, honor, and glory, but how is it that there is something that is full of glory now in this life? And this brings us back to the paradox we opened by discussing. How is it that the pilgrim can experience both heaviness and at the same time joy? Uh, Peter, I'm sorry, uh, the Apostle Paul, in again, 2 Corinthians 4, he described this paradox in this way. He says, but this is uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, earthen vessels, clay pots. There's a treasure in the clay pots that we are. It's interesting because we really are clay pots. We're, we're dust that God put together and breathed into the breath of life. We're just dust. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul continues to describe this paradox in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. He says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. It's a paradox. How do we hold these things together? How can the same person be in heaviness and joy. I would suggest, for your consideration, that verse 9 is Peter's answer to this question. He says, Receiving the end of your faith, or the goal of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Receiving, present tense. He says, now, in verse 8, now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving now, currently, the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. 
Peter has already emphasized the future aspect of salvation. He has told us of the inheritance reserved in heaven for us in verse 5. He's spoken of the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, again in verse 5. And he just told us in verse 7 of the praise, honor, and glory that awaits us at the appearing, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is certainly a future aspect to our salvation. Again, as Paul says in Romans 8.23, we groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our body. But there is also a present aspect to our salvation. It says in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. We have received a foretaste of the future glory in the present redemption of our souls. That is why we can have joy that is full of glory springing from the salvation of our souls while we still await the glory that will come from trials endured in the body. We await full redemption of the body, but we receive salvation of the soul. In eternity, body and soul will meet together. We'll be, perfect, we'll be perfectly glorified. But while we await redemption of the body, there's this struggle Paul talks about over and over again. There's this struggle between uh, the, 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 the remnants of who we were and the new birth, the, the, the effects of the new birth. While we await redemption of the body, we rejoice from the, uh, the salvation of our souls, as Peter calls it. The believer faces great heaviness in the world, but the believer also faces joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. If this description doesn't match your experience, then I would encourage you to meditate on what Peter says our joy should spring from. Meditate on the things in really verses 2 through 5. Meditate on your election. Meditate on your sanctification. Meditate on what Christ did for you. Meditate on the inheritance that he's purchased for you and that awaits you in heaven. But consider carefully if you find no joy in your life ever, Consider carefully whether you have received the salvation of your souls. And if that's something you're questioning, or if it's something you're struggling with, or if it's something you're sitting here thinking, the joy that Peter talks about, that's something that's unspeakable, that's full of glory, I've never experienced anything like that. Then come and talk to myself, or to Rob, or to one of the believers here, and we can at least share with you our experience of the heaviness and the joy in this life. I want to close by reading the lyrics of a song that I grew up singing. It's called Rejoice in the Lord. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long in darkness. He giveth a song. O rejoice in the Lord, he makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. I could not see through the shadows ahead. So I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. 
God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for the time we have to study it together. Father, I don't know which of the manifold temptations are present in the lives of those in this room. Father, I pray that you would help us all to endure. Help us all to see that our suffering, our light affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. Help us to look to the appearing of Jesus Christ where these things will be found unto praise and honor and glory. Father, I pray that you would help us all to find joy in the great salvation that you worked for us. Help us to find joy in the abundant mercy that you showed when you gave us the new birth. And you've made us live in light of a heavenly inheritance that you have reserved in heaven for us. Father, help us to rest in your power by which you keep us unto that inheritance. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's not experienced the unspeakable joy that Peter talks about, I pray that they wouldn't leave the room without speaking to someone about it. There's nothing more important than preparing for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we now enter the part of the service where we're going to meditate on what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. Pray that we would honor and glorify you in the remainder of the service. In Christ's name I pray, amen.